Would you turn to Psalm 48? We began in Psalm 42, traveling from outside of Jerusalem, where we see the psalmist longing to be back in Jerusalem, where he can worship according to the word of God. And we move from Psalm 42 all the way through to Psalm 48, where we find worship taking place once again in the city of Jerusalem according to God's prescription of worship. We remember in Psalm 46, where looking towards the city, it spoke of God as a mighty fortress. And Psalm 47 spoke of the nations praising the Lord. And then Psalm 48 is the joyous praising of the Lord from within the city. And so the, city, the focus of these psalms has been on the city of God. And singing taking place from within it here, as the psalmist was longing to do. And so as we read this psalm and we begin to look at it, there's a few questions we should ask. What is this city? What does the city represent? And how does this city guide our life right now? So those are the questions we want to answer. What is this city? What does the city represent? And how does this city guide our life now? Let us hear the word of God. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. You notice the first three verses begin with praising the Lord within the city itself. Verses 1 through 3 really go together. This praise and this looking forward to the city that we have been seeing, it makes us ask this question, what makes the city so special? Well, the text tells us it's the city of our God. It's His holy mountain. It's the joy of all the earth. It's the city of the great king. It's the city where God has made Himself known as a fortress. This is the city that God has given 
and God has made himself known to his people. And just think about this city. This is Jerusalem. They've been looking and placing their eyes to Jerusalem. Think of the path that they took to get there, to get to this city, and why this city was so important. I just want to travel through the Old Testament for a second. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, we see the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This land is promised in the call to Abram. Where Abram is promised, I will give you a land. It will be for your offspring. But they don't receive the land. Abraham, his immediate children. And you find in Exodus, the children of Abraham are enslaved in Egypt. And they begin to cry out to God. So God appears to Moses as the deliverer in Exodus 3, verse 8, and says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Hang on to that name, the Jebusites because it'll be an important name for this traveling we're doing. This land is promised to Abraham. Abraham doesn't receive it himself. His immediate children don't. Several hundred years later, his children are crying out for God's deliverance. God comes down and appears to Moses and says, I'm going to give the children of Abraham this land. You look in Deuteronomy Chapter 12, in verse 5, where it starts to speak of a specific place in this land. But you will, shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and your contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So you see the progression. God promises a land. Here's a land that's coming. And then when we get to Moses, Moses is going to be the the mediator for the people and to be the deliverer for the people. And then God chooses to tell Moses, there's going to be a specific place in this land. You're going to go to that place that I show you to worship. God is keeping his promise to Abraham. You read in Joshua that it is in chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. When did the fulfillment of? of the Abrahamic promise of land 
When was it fulfilled? Right there. That's where it was filled, fulfilled. Now this promise of land is fulfilled in Joshua, but yet there's not a place that God has called for them, the specific place that will be the perpetual place or perpetual symbol of where worship is to take place until we get to 2 Samuel. Chapter 5, in verse 5, it says that Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And then Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went up to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took hold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. This was the city that became the joy of all the earth that God had established. He said, I'm going to give you a land. He gives them land in Joshua. The land fulfillment is during Joshua's time. But there's going to be a promise of a place of worship. Remember, you're to worship where I show you. You know, when you read of the history of the Israelites, it says that they would worship on the high places. That doesn't mean that they were worshiping foreign gods. It means they were worshiping in a way that God had not prescribed. God said, you're to worship me where I show you. And so when we come to the psalmist, and the psalmist is longing to be in Jerusalem, and we might wonder, well, you can worship anywhere. Well, it's true, but you can't worship anywhere under the Old Covenant unless you're worshiping according to God's prescription, which was to worship in Jerusalem. So you can see how the psalmist would be looking and desiring to be in Jerusalem. And now that he is there, he is saying that this is the joy of all the earth. This is the city of the great king. This is the city of our God. This is his holy mountain because God's presence resides there. God's presence resides there. Now, we believe in the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere. But when we see that presence of God residing there, it is this intensification of His holiness. And you think of uh, the, the camp of Israel and how as you were on the outskirts of the camp, it was less holy. And as you moved inwards, it was more holy until you got to the holy of holies. And because the presence of God was concentrated there. And so this was the joy of all the earth. This is uh, the, the desire of every Israelite to be there in Jerusalem. And so it's interesting that it states this is the joy of all the earth because what we're going to read is actually that there's enemies against this city. Look at verse 4. We've already read, this is the joy of all the earth. This is the place where you're looking for. But then verse 4, For behold, the kings assembled, 
they came on together, and as soon as they saw it, this is the holy city, as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took flight. Trembling took hold of them. Their anguish as of a woman in labor. And so what's the picture? Is these kings assemble. And I want you to notice the plurality. It's not just like one army led by one king, but it's a, it's a picture of massive, a massive kings coming together, meaning a massive opposition is coming against God's holy city. And then when they see the city itself, notice what it says. It says that they were astounded, and that literally means that they were frozen with fear. You ever been frozen with fear? It's a, it's a, it's a weird feeling. I remember I was a little kid, and we had, been at a, we had been at a wedding. It was my cousin's wedding, and we came back home that evening, and we had balloons from the wedding, and they were in our living room. And the ceiling fan was on. And I had gone to bed. All the lights were off in the house. And the ceiling fan was moving those balloons. And so I had gotten up in the middle of the night. And I'm walking down the hallway. And there was, a, there was a nightlight in our hallway. And so I could see from the light in the nightlight into the living room this movement like this. And I froze. I was frightened out of my mind. It took me a few seconds before I realized it was a balloon. I was astounded. I was frozen in fear. It says they panicked. That is that they were horrified. They were trembling. They were, it was uncontrollable shaking. You wonder, how could this city cause this type of fear in man considering the massive armies? And I just want us to... to to probe this question for a little bit. How were they astounded? How did they panic? How, why were they trembling? Because if you look at some of the accounts of Jerusalem and the attack of armies, that's not the picture you get. You think of Sennacherib laying siege. And in Second Chronicles, we, we read this in verse 17. It says this, and he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. They're at the gates. Sennacherib is not trembling. He's threatening and mocking Yahweh. He even mocks the holy name of God. Look what they do. And they shouted, verse 18. They shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they might take the city. They stand before Jerusalem, Sennacherib and his army, which I believe was 185,000 or something large. They're not frightened at all. They're mocking the one true living God. And they're mocking and terrorizing the people inside the wall. But what happens? Verse 21. And Yahweh, who will not be mocked, sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame 
of face to his own land. And when he came into his, the house of his God, some of his sons struck him down there with the sword. They stand before a holy God and they tremble in fear. That's the point. It's not the city. It's the one who occupied the city. It's the one who could send an angel and wipe out an entire army. And we get to really the centerpiece of this psalm. We read of their fear of nations coming against it. Verse 8. As we have seen, so we, as we have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. The presence of God is the preserver of the city. The text says that he will reside there and that he himself will uphold it forever. But I want you to notice the future tense of it. Notice the future tense. Which God will establish forever. That's the future tense. Because when you look at Jerusalem, what happened? Well, Babylonians came in. They fell. What happened when they re-entered the land? Romans took it captive. What did Rome do to Jerusalem? Laid it flat. Every stone turned on itself. Temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed and sacked in 70 AD. So then what do we make of this eternal promise? We see the city, what this city is, was Jerusalem. But what does this city represent? God says that he will establish it forever. Now, if we try to take that as some systems will do as this literal fulfillment of a land promise, what do we already see about the land promise? It was already fulfilled. Land promise was already fulfilled. Joshua eleven twenty three. So what do we make of this future tense of this promise? Well, let's keep going. Look at verse 9, because we see that God's presence in verses 9 through 11 give rise to praise. Look what it says. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. There they are in worship of God. There they have returned to worship within the temple. I want you to focus on this word thought because it's instructive of our own worship. Remember, worship is a response to the revelation of God. We have thought. This is not the word thought as in you're just necessarily thinking on something. It's a word used in comparison. And so what it means is this. It's to ponder something by comparison. To ponder by comparison. And specifically, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God. So, it's an invitation 
of worship or of thought by comparison on God's faithfulness. God's steadfast love, that's what his faithfulness is. So if you think about this, how do I practice this? We're invited to compare God's love to what can be observed and known about love. Think about that. Think about faithfulness. Think of the the greatest example of faithfulness that you could have in your human existence. Compare that to God's. Does that not magnify God's steadfast love and faithfulness? Because the greatest example of faithfulness we find here still falls short. God never does. God never does. It brings us to a place of greater reverence for God's inexhaustible love. Because it's a study and it's a pondering of God's faithfulness in light of our unfaithfulness. It's a thought by contrast or comparison of like things. We have thought on your steadfast love. Boy, you could sit there and ponder God's love and never exhaust it. Guess what? We will do that for all of eternity. Ponder God's steadfast love. We will never exhaust it even in eternity. Goes on in verse 10. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. You see a turn here. It moves from being centered on the city of Jerusalem to moving in a different direction. Your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Whereas praise was concentrated there in the city, what do we see? Praise now moving outward. Meaning praise is not just there in the city of Jerusalem, but it's, a, it's, a, it's reaching the ends of the earth. You can think of a, a worldwide chorus of worship and singing taking place. That the nations are worshiping. That praise itself goes beyond the gates of the city and the whole earth is filled with praise. We have a glimpse of the future right there. We actually have a glimpse of what our own experience is right now, but it's written thousands of years before we got to experience it. What takes place every Lord's Day across the entire globe? A chorus of voices lifting their voices up to Yahweh. It's not centered in one location. It's worldwide. The nations praising God. goes on in verse 11. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, because of the righteousness of God. Let them all praise God. Let them rejoice 
let them be glad. And you go to verses 12 through 14, you see the glory of God is revealed in his city. Walk about Zion, it says in verse 12. This is for us to think about. If you wanted to show someone something special, you might say, go take a look at it. Pick it up. Examine it. That's what we're being called to do here. Look what it says. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. In other words, explore the city. Take a look around and see how great it is. We're called to go and and look at the circumference of the city. It says go around her. We're told to number her towers. Look at the towers that are fortified. Consider her ramparts. That is the defensive walls. Remember, we're looking at Jerusalem, that, that city that is a fortress. Look at the citadels. That's the fortified parts of the buildings. Consider them. Look at how massive it is. Look at what a great fortress this is that cannot be disturbed. And that the enemies will actually, at the gates of it, will tremble and run. And we're to look at this for a purpose. Look what it says. That. Examine it. See how God has designed this city so that you may tell the next generation that this is God. It's no longer about the city. It's about God. Our God, forever and ever, He will guide us. Some translations say He will guide us beyond death. Whatever the translation is, the point remains the same. God will see you through this life. It's interesting that when you read this psalm, so much of it is focused in on Jerusalem. So much of it is also pointing forward. All of it's really pointing forward. But I just want to point out something about Jerusalem, the temple, and worship. Jerusalem and the temple specifically were to be a light that attracted the nations to come to it. In fact, when Solomon dedicates it, he prays for this. In 2 Chronicles 6, he says, Likewise, when a foreigner, so from places all over the earth, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name, speaking of God, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that for this purpose all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. The temple, Jerusalem, was to be a beacon light 
for the nations to flow into it, that they would know God. This indestructible city. I just want you to consider a couple of things here. What does the city represent? The city is a representation of the church. Just consider the future aspect that we already saw. This will happen. What does the Lord Jesus say about the citadels, the ramparts of the church? Well, we we actually find out that Jesus is our strong tower. We find out that he is the ramparts, that Jesus is the defensive wall. Jesus is the guardian. What does Jesus say in Matthew 16, verse 18? You know the verse. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church upon the confession of Christ. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is guaranteed a protection that it will always be there. And then you see the movement from being centered in Jerusalem to a worldwide direction. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. The movement moves from Jerusalem outwardly. Jerusalem now no longer is a literal place that is to attract people, but actually from Jerusalem, evangelism went out into all the world that all nations might be praising God. Which is why we live in the reality today that every Sunday, what happens all across the world? Nations worship God. Christ is building his temple, Christ is building his city, and he's doing this through a people throughout all of the earth. And I want you to notice how Christ describes his people. You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Jesus says that you are that light. He says this, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells us we are the light. Jesus tells us that we are to take that light out into the world. I sometimes think we get this upside down and we actually go back to Solomon and say that's how we should do evangelism. What do I mean by that? Evangelism for Solomon was the temple, which would attract people. And we take that same thing today and say, how can we attract people to the church? Jesus doesn't say, I want you to go into all nations and have them come into the church. He says, I want you to go into all nations. He commands us to go to them. 
But what is it that we try to do today? So we try to make it all about bringing them into church. And that's not a bad thing to get people in church, right? This church is for the worship of holy God. We're to go to them. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? This is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is our commission. We are to take the gospel to our neighbor. It's not merely just lifestyle evangelism. It's not just merely being a good neighbor. It's not just living righteously. It's the proclamation. It's words of the gospel that are to be spoken. That's our mission. And through the message proclaimed by the saints, Christ grows his kingdom and protects it. You know, a couple of things just to think about. We, we ought to be praying for ways to share the gospel. How do you do that? Well, pray, pray by name people you know that have not received Christ. Pray for them because when, you, when you're praying for them and you're putting them before God, that means they're on your heart and you're pleading on their behalf that God would send His Spirit and regenerate their heart. Pray for courage that you would speak when the Lord opens the door and, and look for ways because it's amazing how God opens those doors. In many of my seminary classes, we would have uh, an assignment. It happened in so many of the classes where you would have to write a report on some sort of evangel- um, evangelism encounter that you had. And, and everyone panicked on this as if it wasn't a part of our natural, just our, our normal part of life that we could go, oh, I wonder which one I want to write down. But you know how that is too. And so I, I got towards the end of the semester and there, there had not been anything that had happened. And so I invited someone that wasn't a believer to go to lunch with me. And we were sitting there at lunch and I'm, I'm trying to open the door, and every time I, I open the door to try to start in a, um, a conversation that would lead to the gospel, he shut it. And I'm looking at the clock, and I had to go back to work, and we've got like 10 minutes left, and this elderly couple comes in, and they're moving really, really slow. And they were on a, um, a walker, and he made some sort of comment about the shape that their body was in and said, I, I'm not looking forward to experiencing that later on in life. And I said, thank you, Lord, for opening that door. The Lord in his providence sent those people in there at that time to open the door that I couldn't force open myself. And the Lord does that. When you're looking for those opportunities, because I got to tell him about an eternal glorified body that we can receive and that we can live for. And that led into, what are you talking about? Let me tell you about what Christ did for you. 
You know, you can just ask the Lord, Lord, help open these doors for me. And you'd be amazed how many times God opens a door for you to present the gospel to someone. But you've got to be praying for that because it's got to be on your heart and your mind. And you'd be amazed what the Lord does. There's something else that we should see in this is the Lord protects his church. It's frightening to go and share. And it seems like there's a building animosity against the church. The church has its enemies. The people of God are harassed all around the world. But the enemy has to be wondering, how after all these hundreds of years are these people still around? How are we still around? The enemy says, I'll throw atheists at them with their slick arguments. The enemy says this, I'll throw kings at them that will persecute them. The enemy says, I'll throw Islam at them. The enemy says, I'll throw a works-based righteousness at them. The enemy says, I'll divide them. But guess what? The church is still here. And by God's grace and in His providence, the places where Christianity is growing at the most rapid speed is in the most persecuted countries across the world. The enemy must be wondering, how is it that these people remain? Church is still here, so here's our call. Walk around and see the circumference of the city. Look at how big it is. Look at the circumference. Just walk around Zion. And what do you see? It's all across the world. Look at its walls. Look at its ramparts. Look at its citadels. Look at how it has withstood all the attacks that the enemy can throw at it. All the fury of hell is thrown at the church. And the church is still here. Have there been casualties? Yes, but Christ still preserves his people. The Family Worship Bible Study Guide says this, We may tremble for the church, but we should remember that God has decreed its establishment, and therefore we should take heart. So we see what the city is. We see what the city represents. How does this affect how we live right now? Be comfortable that this wonderful city is the city for which we live because it is ours by inheritance. And here's our charge. Stay on the path. Stay on the path to its eternal dwelling. Don't be thrown off as Christian was in Pilgrim's Progress. When the voices of worldly wisdom and the town of carnal policy speak of an easier path, stay on the path. Don't be sucked in by the allure of the city of vanity and its vanity fair. But keep your eye on the path given by the evangelist to go towards the wicket gate. When the waters of life get rough, do not be led astray into doubting castle. But keep your eyes on the celestial city that you may enter through the wicked gate. The wicked gate is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So as we march towards that eternal city dwelling, keep your eyes upon the wicked gate and don't be drawn off. Don't be pulled aside. Don't be distracted, but keep your eyes on Christ. Stay there because he's got you and he will hold you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has secured our salvation and that in him we are secure. I pray, Father, that this psalm would encourage our hearts to look forward to that celestial city, the place where there is no sun or moon, but it is lighted by the glory of the Lamb. I pray that, Father, not only would we be comforted, but we would keep our eyes on Christ by your grace. And our hearts would be warmed and encouraged by the truth that it is an, an undefeatable city guarded by Christ himself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.